the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week i'm your host jeff better known as Benedict fish and i'm your other host emmett better known as poor quentin and welcome to the 167th episode of the not a cast titled the terror part two an analysis of a storm of swords samwell one in which samwell has a really bad time but at the very end the slayer arises the sleeper has awakened yes indeed <laughs> so last week in our first of two episodes on a storm of swords samwell one we covered the basics including the structure of the chapter the tone how we feel about getting into sam as a pov and in this episode we're going to get more into the meat of the rest of the chapter dealing at length with what actually went down at the fist of the first men and then catching back up in the present moment as sam and his companions confront the white walker it's going to be a blast. Three horns full for this chapter. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Joom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Rebelman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, Lord Jake Assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rager Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Gracious High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly Warden of the East Emissions of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex Beyonce's favorite sin, Herald of Share, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, and Not a Cast, Non Binary, Not an Army, Haldiver, the Way for T. Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender, Blender of Paints, Make of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Ever King and Horror of Harrenhal, Hold Up the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who brings balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wordness of the South, and the patron of free-wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Warren the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous the Second, Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful romantic and unrepentant shipper. Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls, and our newest member of the small council. Everyone say hello to Sir Small Call Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of the Dunstar Castle, who joins the small council after an extended service as a high lord. Thank you to all of our not a small councillors and welcome to Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of Dunstar Castle. I'm finally so happy I get to say it instead of you because that was such a fun name to listen to for so many months, wasn't it? 
It's all yours now. And yes, thank you to all our counselors as always. And a special welcome to Sir Smallpaul. So glad to have you with us on the council now. And how appropriate for this uh, chapter of all chapters, where Smallpaul gives it his all and then dies. Yes, but hey, at the very least, it's not his final appearance in the series, right? Right? Yeah, about that. Yeah, we'll get to that in same old three. Our spoiler warning, as we save in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Winsomer sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Darren S., a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, I'm starting my fifth reread of A Storm of Swords alongside your podcast. Great job, by the way. Good work. And I know Sam 1 is coming up soon. What I've noticed from my second or third time rereading the series is that the language that George uses for Sam's terror-filled push to find Craster's Keep oddly mirrors other characters from throughout the series. John 6 in The Clash of Kings, Sansa 5 in A Storm of Swords, Danny 9 in A Dance with Dragons, Cersei 2 in A Dance with Dragons, and Danny 10 in A Dance with Dragons. In Sam's chapter, the language is one and then the other. They took a step, which George varies in the other chapters listed. In each of these, the POV character is going through it. John is frightened of falling off the mountain, Sam is experiencing sheer terror from being hunted by the others, Sansa's fleeing the capital, Danny going to her wedding to Hisdar, Cersei experiencing her walk of atonement, and Danny going through the grass sea. I suppose my question, because I'm not as eloquent as y'all, why does George use a similarly worded phrasing, one step and then another, for these characters, and will we see this wording again, say, during a certain Jon Snow chapter, when he's deliberating something very dramatic, which better end with him resolutely thinking, you know nothing, Jon Snow. So what do you think about that, Jeff, about that kind of that structure that George uses? And do you think we're going to see it again in the future? I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, it's really a good pickup that George loves to use these kind of like stepping verbiage when it comes to these characters. They're obviously going through a lot. Samo in this chapter is literally taking one, you know, staggering step after the other as he tries to to flee the others. And I think a lot of these, these other characters who have the same sort of like similar verbiage or they have the same sort of like language dynamic where they were they're repeating a phrase over and over again works really well to to paint character pictures for me so i i think the idea of you know i, I think danny specifically because that's probably the character i'm most familiar with having read her, her dance with dragons chapters many many times at this point you know the way that she's constantly like stepping forward like one step and then the other is about her like how far she's going to step forward to resolve the internal conflict in marine and the external conflict with 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 young kai i think the fact that i think that, that what what george tries to communicate with danny is that is she taking is she taking too many steps along to to achieve her goals is it just one more thing that she has to do and then she'll she'll achieve you know as uh, as the green grace calls it the the peace or the or the pearl without price um you know, we'll have a discussion about this at some point, whether whether the piece that Dan was trying to achieve is was worth trying to achieve in the first place. But I but I think it, it does demonstrate for Danny's character how she's constantly moving forward to towards her goal. But is she going moving too far towards her goal? I think it, it, in Samuel one specifically, sobbing Sam Samuel took another step. It communicates again the physicality that Samuel is dealing with. As we talked about last week, he's carrying an enormous pack. He's weighed down. He's exhausted. He's moving through snow that is up to his knees at this point. And all of that with all of the psychological terrors that he's experiencing that we're going to unpack in significant detail in this analysis. Because Samo is carrying a lot of psychological and emotional baggage with him alongside of that heavy pack that he carries. Sobbing, he takes another step. To me, communicates that 
despite the fact that he's been giving the shit end of the stick in terms of all of the the burdens that his father and Rast and Sir Alistair Thorne placed upon him, that he's still moving forward. He's still trying to cling to life. And he eventually falls to the ground. And there's a moment where Samuel thinks in this chapter, maybe I'll just stay here and rest a little or die a little. When he talks about dying a little, I think it's, it's, it's an amazingly chillingly sad depressing moment that he thinks that he's so you know he's being weighed down so heavily by by both the physical back he's carrying but also the emotional burdens that he is also carrying that he stops sobbing and taking another step until the very end where he finally gets up and he keeps trying that despite everything that he's experiencing and really everything that these other characters are experiencing that um that that darren mentions that he's actually having them push forward and I think it, it can communicate different things so um, obviously I'm most attuned to what Samuels is, is thinking and, and kind of the the what the what George is communicating with his words here in, in, in A Storm of Swords Samuel 1 but I'm curious do you have any thoughts about what the other characters are being communicated well you could also talk about Samuel 1 as well, Samuel as, as well because you know we are very familiar with this character now having been here for two weeks I think it's an interesting contrast between being very present in the moment and feeling kind of outside it at the same time because all those characters are going through stresses of various kinds whether physical or emotional or both at the same time and so they kind of feel outside their body even though their decisions are kind of being narrowed to this point of I just need to keep moving forward I need to get from point A to point B but I think it's maybe it's a sense of destiny that George is trying to get across, that they feel that someone else is moving their feet. That's what Sam says, right? Someone else is walking. It's not me. And maybe that's what those other characters are feeling, too, that when, when Sans is fleeing the capital, her emotions are in such a turmoil, like Joffrey's dead, but it's kind of a horrible event, and she doesn't know what's going to happen next. Same thing with, with Danny going off to Daznak's pit. Cersei going through the walk is an interesting... I never thought about that comparison to this Sam chapter before, and I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's the brutal physicality of it all in both cases, that their bodies are breaking down, that they're suffering immensely, taking another step. But Cersei is... She's kind of dealing with a a literal crowd of people insulting her, whereas Sam has all the insults in his head. (laughs) He has all the people yelling and telling he's worthless, whereas for Cersei, they're really there. And so I think George is trying to narrow down the intensity of a moment like that and kind of kind of reduce it to its its barest point in contrast to something overwhelming and complicated like the battle of blackwater where everything is moving so quickly and no one no one's really just taking one step and then another at the battle of blackwater or it doesn't feel like that it feels like everything is is in disarray and anything could happen at any moment but i think i think george is trying to highlight that contrast of you have a wild environment and different motivations but what what is you as a person can do it's almost like a zen quality to it like you have to live in your present moment and you have to be mindful and you have to react to your environment uh, despite the chaos going on and there is you know sam does achieve that kind of almost transcendent feeling i think by by the end of that end of this chapter and uh, those other characters do too it's not always positive because you know like Cersei's walk ends with her finding Robert Strong but I there's almost um almost a spiritually spiritual quality to it like a a gauntlet you're undergoing in order to become another version of yourself a transition of some kind and I I think Darren is right that the that John could be building up towards that 
in the books once he makes the decision to turn on Danny he could be like maybe literally dragging his feet like I don't Mm. want to do this but I feel like I have to or I feel like I'm destined to I could absolutely see that being his feeling Mm -hmm. so thank you so much to Darren for the question if you'd like to ask us questions we must answer here in the not a cast podcast you are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Nada Slack, shout out to the start and end of every episode, weekly mini-sodes, and bonus episodes, like our upcoming special holiday episode, which we're pleased to announce will be all about Theon in a Dance with Dragons. We're going to take a look at that, one of the great, if not maybe the greatest single arc in the entire series, hmm. Theon in Dance. I'm very excited about it. I love those chapters. And as tradition, our special holiday episode will be released early for all of our $5 and above patrons, and then we'll be out for everyone at the end of the month. And like I said, that episode will be an overview analysis of Theon and Dance, and that'll work as a nice little preview of our next stretch goal, which is a multi-part analysis of Theon's sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, which is basically a sequel to his arc and dance. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about that because, you know, as many folks know that Theon chapter from The Winds of Winter was originally written for A Dance with Dragons. So it's a nice little flow from those Theon and Dance with Dragons chapters into our hopeful eventual multi-part analysis of Theon and The Winds of Winter. And on the note about our stretch goals, so we have decided yet again to revise our Patreon goals. I always have these like lofty ideas for Patreon, but I do realize that with the long wait before House of the Dragon or God forbid The Winds of Winter, things might get slow on our Patreon. So to kind of incentivize things a little bit, here's how we're planning on doing our stretch goal. And it's going to be a multi, and to do that, we're going to do a multi-part stretch goal. So at 950 total patrons, we'll do the Winds of Winter Theon 1 Part 1. At 975 patrons, we'll do the Winds of Winter Theon Part 2. At 1,000 patrons, which would be totally awesome to get there, we'll do the Winds of Winter Theon 1 Part 3. And at 1,025 patrons, we'll do the future of Theon Greyjoy in the Winds of Winter. Now, someone on our Patreon had asked us whether we would be able to provide you all with a count of how we're getting, how we're doing to get to that stretch goal. So we'll start doing that regularly going forward. So as of the recording of this episode, we are at 909 patrons or 41 new patrons shy of releasing the first part of our analysis of the Winds of Winter Theon chapter. So if you like what you hear on our regular episodes, enjoy all of the holiday bonus content, and want to hear us tackle the Theon, the Winds of Winter chapter, consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Samuel Tarly, he had fallen and couldn't get up in the snow. Let's find out if Samuel Tarly can rise to become the Slayer in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Samuel 1, Part 2. When the horns blew, Sam had been sleeping. He thought he was dreaming them at first, but when he grabbed, when he opened his eyes, snow was falling on the camp, and the Black Brothers were all grabbing bows and spears and running toward the ring wall. Chet was the only one nearby, Maester Eamon's old steward with a face full of boils and the big wen on his neck. Sam had never seen so much fear on a man's face as he saw in Chet's when that third blast came moaning through the trees. Help me get the birds off, Samuel pleaded, but the other steward had turned and run off, dagger in hand. He has the dogs to care for, Sam remembered. Probably the Lord Commander has given him some orders as well. Well, we open the second part of this analysis of a storm of sword symbol with a rather generous interpretation of Chet's motivations here. And that's only because Sam is actually a good guy. He truly is.
Samuel Tarley was terrified as he tried to put his fingers into gloves, and the ravens were shrieking. Sam manages to put the parchment pouch and messages he wrote. He opens the cage, and one raven flies right into his face. Two more escape. He catches one raven and puts a message onto the bird. The fist sounds with shouts as he charges the birds to fly. He grabs another raven and attaches the message to that raven too. Samuel finishes getting dressed, buckling his sword belt on tight, grabs his pack, and stuffs everything he can into it. Small clothes, dry socks, oh, and some dragon glass arrowheads and the spearhead. Nothing important about those. He also gets the extremely, another extremely inconsequential thing, that is the horn that Jon Snow gave him. Samuel grabs his writing instruments and ink, and ink maps a sausage for the road, and then he's not really sure what to do. He did his duty by sending the birds. Now what? He remembered turning in a circle, lost, the fear growing inside of him as it always did. There were dogs barking and horses trumpeting, but the snow muffled the sounds and made them seem far away. Sam could see nothing beyond three yards, not even the torches burning along the low stone wall that ringed the crown of the hill. Could those torches have gone out? That was too scary to think about. The horn blew thrice long. Three long blasts means others. The white walkers of the wood, the cold shadows, the monsters of the tails that made him squeak and tremble as a boy, riding their giant ice spiders, hungry for blood. So Sam draws his sword and follows some shadow tower men to the wall, finding torches burning to his relief. The Black Brothers stood with swords and spears in hand, watching the snow fall, waiting. Sir Maladerlock went by on his horse, wearing a snow-speckled helm. Sam stood well back behind the others, looking for Gren or Dolorous Ed. If I have to die, let me die beside my friends, he remembered thinking. But all of the men around him were strangers, shadow terror men under the command of a ranger named Blaine. Here they come, he heard a brother say. Notch, said Blaine, and twenty black arrows were pulled from his many quivers and notched to his many bowstrings. Gods be good, there are hundreds, a voice said softly. Draw, Blaine said, and then hold. Sam could not see and did not want to see. The men of the Night's Watch stood behind their torches, waiting with arrows, pulled back to their ears as someone came, as something came up that dark, slippery slope through the snow. Hold, said Blaine again. Hold, hold, and then loose, the arrows whispered as they flew. It's really hard not to quote this entire passage because it's fucking amazing. Alas. The Night's Watch cheer, but then someone says the Whites aren't stopping. Maybe we should take care of that. They quickly come upon the men as Samuel realizes that he's backing away from the ring wall. Samuel flashes back to the present, thinking how the snow was warmer than, when he ex than what he experienced that night with the others all around them. He just needs to rest a moment. A horse passes by Samuel, and then a man and a horse pass Sam. Sam wishes he had a horse to carry him, but there were two, men there were two few mounts left after the Battle of the Fists of the First Men, and the few horses remaining were carrying the food, torches, and wounded. And Sam wasn't wounded. He was just fat and weak, a craven. He was such a coward. Lord Randall, his father, had always said so, and he had always been right. Sam was his heir, but he had never been worthy, so his father had sent him away to the wall. His little brother Dickon would inherit the, tick, the Tarly lands and castle, and the great sword Heartsbane that the lords of Horn Hill had borne so proudly for centuries. He wondered whether Dickon would shed a tear for his brother who died in the snow, somewhere off beyond the edge of the world. Why should he? A coward's not worth weeping over. He had heard his father tell his mother as much half hundred times. The old bear knew it too. Back to the metal bow battle, Mormont appears on horseback, orders fire arrows to be shot into the whites. He notices Samuel there and tells the boy to get back to the ravens. When Sam says he got the ravens away, Mormont's all like, awesome, but, you know, get gone. Mormont might need to send more birds. Get the birds ready. The LC turns and then orders more fire. 
So Sam heads back to the birds very fast. He writes messages ahead of time and starts writing the messages as he listens to the battle. And fuck it, this shit is so good. I'm just going to read from the book for this long portion. Attacked amidst snow and cold, but we've thrown them back with fire arrows, he wrote as he heard Thorin Smallwell's voice ring out with the command of, Notch, draw, loose. The flight of arrows made a sound as sweet as a mother's prayer. Burn, you dead bastards, burn, Tywin sang out cackling. The brothers cheered and cursed. All safe, he wrote. We remain on the fist of the first men. Sam hoped they were better archers than him. Samo put that note aside and found another blank parchment. Still fighting on the fist amidst heavy snow. He wrote when someone shouted, They're still coming! Result uncertain. Spears, someone said. It might have been Sir Malador, but Sam could not swear to it. Whites attacked us on the fist in snow, he wrote, but we drove them off with fire. He turned his head. Through the drifting snow, all he could see was the huge fire at the center of the camp with mounted men moving restlessly around it. The reserve, he knew, ready to ride down anything that breached the ring wall. They had armed themselves with torches in place of swords and were lighting them in flames. Whites all around us, he wrote, when he heard the shouts from the north face, coming up from the north and south at once. Spears and swords don't stop them, only fire. Loose! 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 A voice screamed in the night, and another shouted, bloody huge! And a third said, a giant! And a fourth insisted, no, a bear! A bear! A horse shrieked and the hounds began to bay, and there was so much shouting that Sam couldn't make out the voices anymore. He wrote faster, note after note. Dead wildlings and a giant or maybe a pair on us all around. He heard the crash of steel on wood, which could only mean one thing. Whites over the ring wall, fighting inside the camp. A dozen mounted brothers pounded past him toward the east while burning brands streaming flames in each, other, in, in each rider's hand. Lord Commander Mormont is meeting them with fire. We've won. We're winning. We're, we're holding our own. We're cutting our way free and retreating from the wall. We're trapped on the fist. Hard-pressed. Good lord, this is amazing writing. A shower tower man staggers to Sam and dies as Samuel writes that the battle is lost. Everyone is lost. But Sam doesn't want to remember the battle. He wants to remember his sister, or Gilly. But then Gren is there trying to wake Samuel Tarly, telling him he needs to get up. Sam says he just wants to rest a little. He'll catch up with the party soon. No, Sam is going to freeze or the others will get him unless he gets up and moves. The night before they left the wall, Pip had teased Gren the way he did. Sam remembered smiling and saying how Gren was a good choice for the ranging since he was too stupid to be terrified. Gren hotly denied until he realized what he was saying. He was stocky and thick-necked and strong and strong. Sir Alistair Thorne had called him Aurochs, the same way he called him he called Sam Sir Piggy and John Lord Snow, but he had always treated Sam nice enough. That was only because of John, though. If it weren't for John, none of them would have liked me, and now John was gone, lost in the scrolling past with Cor and Halfhand, most likely dead. Sam would have cried for him, but those tears would only freeze as well. He could scarcely keep his eyes open now. But then a tall brother with a torch stops, and Sam feels the warmth on his face. He tells Gren to leave Sam there, but Gren refuses. Sam will get up. The ranger moves on as Gren tries to pick Samuel up to no avail. Frustrated, frustrated, Gren kicks Sam and tells him to get up. Now! Instead, Samuel falls over and curls up in a ball. Hurt. Sam thinks that Gren was his friend, and friends don't kick their friends. He just needs to rest, sleep, and then he'll very definitely get up and get moving. Or... He might die a little. If you take the torch, I can take the fat boy. Suddenly, Samuel was jerked up into the cold air, away from his sweet, soft snow. He was floating. There was an arm under his knees and another on one under his back. Sam raised his head and blinked. A face loomed close, a broad, brutal face with a flat nose and small, dark eyes and a, thick, and a, and a thicket of coarse brown beard. He had seen the face before, but it took him a moment to remember. Paul, 
Smallpaw. Melting ice ran down into his eyes from the torch, heat of his torch. Can you carry him? He heard Grin ask. I carried a calf once, was heavier than him. I carried him down to his mother so he could get a drink of milk. Sam tells Smallpaw to put him down and stop carrying him like a baby. He's a man of the Night's Watch and he just wants to die. Gren tells Sam to shut up and think about happy things. His sisters, Eamon, food, or sing a song. Sing a song aloud? No, in your head, Sam. But Sam can't remember any of the hundred songs he used to know. What about the bear and the maiden fair, Gren suggests. Please, please no. Sam preferred not to think of bears, given that the last one he saw had been undead with no hair and rotting flesh. So Gren tells him to think of ravens instead. Small Paul frowned. Chet said I could have the old bear's raven, the one that talks. I saved food for it and everything. Paul shook his head. I, I forgot, though. I left the food where I hid it. He plodded onward, pale white breath coming from his mouth with every step, and then suddenly said, Could I have one of your ravens? J just the one. I never let Lark eat it. They're gone, said Sam. I'm, I'm sorry. So sorry. They're flying back to the wall now. He had set the birds free when he'd heard the war horn sound once more, calling the watch to horse. Two short blasts and a long one, that was the call to mount up. But there was no reason to mount unless to abandon the fist, and that meant the battle was lost. The fear bit him so strong then that it was all Sam could do to open the cages. Only as he watched the last raven flap up into the snowstorm did he realize that he had forgotten to send any of the messages he'd written. Horrified, Samuel starts squealing, No! But this And this sends him back to the fist of the first man in yet another flashback. The horns were blowing as the order came down to get on their horses. Sam tried to chase the ravens around, but they evaded him. After that, he remembered the dead coming over the stones with arrows in their faces and through their throats. Some were all in ringmail and some were almost naked. Wildlings, most of them, but a few wore faded blacks. He remembered one of the Shadow Tower men shove his spear through a white, soft, pale, soft belly and out his back, and how the thing staggered right up the shaft and reached out with his black hands and twisted the brother's head around until blood came out of his mouth. That was when his bladder let go the first time. He was almost sure. Samuel runs and arrives at the fire on the other side of the camp. Sir Aden Withers was there on his knees staring until a horse kicks him in the face. Archers were loosing fire arrows at the whites and some of them exploded in flame, but more kept coming behind them. And then Samuel sees the massive bear and the archers run out of there and, the, and then the archers run out of arrows. Then Sam was on a horse as the horns blow. He kicks the horse and the horse rides. In the midst of the carnage and chaos and blowing snow, he found Dolores Ed sitting on his garron with a plain black banner on his spear. Sam, Ed said when he saw him, would you please wake me? I am having this terrible nightmare. More men were mounting up every moment. The war horns called them back. Ahoo! 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 Over the west wall, my lord! Thorin Smallwood screamed at the old bear as he fought to control his horse. I'll send the reserves! No! Mormon had to bellow atop his lungs as we heard over the horns. Call them back! We have to cut our way out! He stood in his stirrups, his black cloak snapping in the wind, the fire shining off his armor. Spirit, he roared. Form wedge, we ride. Down the south face, then east. My lord, the south, slopes, the south slope's crawling with them. The others are too steep, Mormont said. We have. Elsie Mormont's horse screams and almost throws Mormont from it as Sam pisses himself yet again. The bear then comes into view with bright blue eyes that John noted previously. Sir Thorin Smallwood charges the bear, swings his sword, and takes off most of the bear's head. And then the undead bear takes off all of Smallwood's head. Ride! The Lord Commander shouted, wheeling. They were galloping when they reached the ring wall. They jump over the ring wall and they rush down the hillside as everyone fights desperately at all the whites attacking and grasping for them. And Sam O'Tarley sobbed, clutching desperately to his horse with the strength he never knew he had. 
Samuel Tarley was in the middle of the flying spearhead as the column plunges into the mass of undead humanity which grabs for them, kills their horses and attacks. But then Samuel finds himself outside the battle until a fellow brother, in quotation marks, jumps up and kicks him out of the horse, steals it and gallops off. Sam chases until he trips over roots and falls. He weeps until Dullerous Ed finds him. That was the last coherent memory of the Fist of the First Men. Later, hours later, he stood shivering among the other survivors, half mountain and half a foot. They were miles from the Fist by them, though Sam did not remember how. Dywin had led down five pack horses, heavy laden with food and oil and torches, and three had made it this far. The old bear made them redistribute their loads so the loss of any one horse and its provisions would not be such a catastrophe. He took garrons from the healthy men and gave them to the wounded, organized the walkers, and set torches to guard their flanks and rears. All I need to do is walk, Sam told himself as he took that first step toward home. But before an hour was gone, he had begun to struggle and to lag. Sam realizes that they're going much slower than desired, and even if Smallpaw was super strong, he was carrying, he was carrying Sam through heavy snow. Horsemen pass with torches in hand. They tell the party that they're falling behind. They tell Gren and Paul to just leave Sam for the whites. But Paul is stubborn. He was promised a bird. Not really, Sam thinks. And the torchbearer moves on. It was a while after when Gren suddenly stopped. We're alone, he said in a hoarse voice. I, 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 can see the, I can't see the other torches. Was, was, that the real, was that the rear guard? Small Paul had no answer for him. The big man gave a grunt and sank to his knees. His arms trembled as he lay Sam gently in the snow. I can't carry you no more. I would, but I can't. He shivered violently. The wind moves through the trees, and Sam looks for the torches but doesn't see anything besides Gren's torch. And if that torch burned out, they would be alone. But that was wrong. They weren't alone at all. Fuck, oh shit, here it comes. The lower branches of the great green sentinel shed their burden of snow with a soft, wet plop. Gren spun, thrusting out his torch. Who, 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 who goes there? A horse's head emerged from the darkness. Sam felt a moment's relief until he saw the horse. Horror frost covered it like a sheen of frozen sweat and a nest of stiff black entrails dragged from its open belly. On its back was a rider pale as ice. Sam made a whimpery sound deep in his throat. He was so scared he might have pissed himself all over again. But the cold was in him, a cold so savage that his bladder felt frozen solid. The other slid gracefully from the saddle to stand upon the snow. Sword slim it was and milky white. Its armor rippled and shifted as it moved, and its feet did not break the crust of new fallen snow, which is just an air horns, air horns, air horns moment for me. Small Paul unslung the long hafted axe strapped across his back. Why'd you hurt that horse? That was Marnie's horse. Sam groped for the hilt of his sword, but the scabbard was empty. He had lost it on the fist. He remembered too late. Okay, fine, fine. I'll do some synopsizing, but this is really amazing stuff. Gren tells the other to get away as he pokes it with flames, but then the other sword slashes the torch and the fire falls into the snow. Gren throws the stick at the other, and then Paul charges in with his axe. Samuel begs the mother for mercy, and for the father to protect him, his fingers grab the dagger. The whites were slow, but the other was quick. It dodged Paul's axe, spun around the big man, and its crystal sword impaled small Paul. Paul's blood smokes, and he tries to reach out to kill the other with his hands, but he falls. Paul's weight pulls the sword from the other's grip. Do it now. Stop crying and fight. You baby, fight, Craven. It was his father he heard. It was Alistair Thorne. It was his brother Dickon and the boy Rast. Craven, Craven, Craven. He giggled hysterically, wondered if they would make a white of him, a huge fat white always tripping over its own dead feet. Do it, Sam. Was that John now? John was dead. You could do it. You can. Just do it. 
And then he was stumbling forward, falling more than running, really, closing his eyes and shoving the dagger blindly out before him with both hands. He heard a crack like the sound ice makes when it breaks beneath a man's foot, and then a screech so shrill and sharp that he went staggering backward with his hands muffled over his ears and fell hard on his arse. When he opened his eyes, the other's armor was running down its legs in rivulets as pale blue blood hissed and steamed around the black dragon glass dagger in its throat. He reached down with two bone white hands to pull out the knife, but where its fingers touched the obsidian, but where its fingers touched the obsidian, they smoked. Oh yes, this is amazing! Sam rolled onto his side, eyes wide as the other shrank and puddled, dissolving away. In twenty heartbeats, its flesh was gone, swirling away in a fine white mist. Beneath were bones like milk glass, pale and pale and shiny, and they were melting too. Finally, only the dragon glass dagger remained, wreathed in steam as it were, as, it, as if it were alive and sweating. Gren bent to scoop it up and flung it down once again. Mother, that's cold! Samuel says that it's obsidian, dragon glass. Sam giggles and cries and then vomits to the snow. Gren gets Sam to his feet, checks Paul to see if he's alive, and then closes his eyes. Gren grabs the dagger and Samuel says Gren should keep it as he's not a coward like Sam. So, Craven, you killed another? Gren pointed with the knife. Look there, through the trees. Pink light. Dawn, Sam. Dawn. That must be east. If we head that way, we should catch Mormont. If you say. Sam kicked his left foot against a tree to knock off all the snow, then the right. I'll try. Grimacing, he took another step. I'll try hard. And then another. And that is the absolutely amazing, heart-stirring, beautiful end to this synopsis of part two of A Storm of Swords, Samo 1. Last week, I bullshit about how much you would probably hate this chapter, but I'm not going to do that this week because I know you didn't gush for hours. Gladly. Last week, we talked about the experimental structure of this chapter, how it conveys Sam's mindset and how George carefully conceals the actual inciting incident so as to make it all the more frightening. This week, we tunnel to the core of Sam 1 to learn the terrible truth, like flipping over a rock to reveal all the bugs squirming around underneath. George still cuts back and forth between the past and the present, but less frequently, cutting off any chance of escaping the terror. Now we fully get to understand what has reduced Sam to such a shambling wreck in the present, which makes the ending, when he does basically the most heroic thing ever, all the more satisfying. A Song of Ice and Fire doesn't get better than this. Horror doesn't get better than this. Hell, stories don't get better than this. You're right about that. This is this is George at the apex of his writing, I think. And and I think the writing works so well on multiple levels. One level it doesn't work at well is this kind of theory that's been tossed around recently. Have you heard the theory that A Song of Ice and Fire is a nihilistic story set in direct contrast <laughs> to Lord of the Rings? Has, has I anyone, have. I, yes, so have I. I think every time you hear someone say this, and it's not just one person, it's many, many people who have said this, please point them to this chapter. I, I, I've cited George's statement that the ending to A Song of Ice and Fire will be bittersweet over and over again. Ad nauseum. You're, you're tired of hearing it. I'm tired of saying it. But I do think that this chapter is the end of A Song of Ice and Fire in miniature. There's a lot of psychological bitterness in Sam's memories of the fists of the first men, and even greater bitterness when he hears his father's voice telling him to just die and then there's a lot of bitterness in small paul's death but all that bitterness is vital to the sweetness at chapter's end in samuel's triumph in killing an other and then vowing to try really hard to stay alive i think 
we wouldn't experience that catharsis that catharsis at chapter's end unless we had all of the bitterness leading up to the triumph. We need that hopeless feeling first to make that hope that triumphant moment that much greater. So let's get right into that darkness with Sam's memories of the Battle of the Fist of the First Men before we get to the triumph by chapter's end. So in the present moment, Sam is sinking into the snow, accepting death, and all the internal barriers fall away, and he remembers at length what went down at the Fist of the First Men. George drags us back to the moment we left off at the end of the prologue, the third horn blast signaling the others. When we last checked in with Chet, he was pissing himself from fear, and Sam tells us he'd never seen someone look so afraid. Sam begs for help with the birds, but Chet runs off. Sam assumes he had his own orders, and anyway, he has to care for the dogs. This is ironic on multiple levels. The reader knows that Chet was just about to slit Sam's throat. If anything, the others saved Sam from Chet. And I love that even as George finally unveils his otherworldly apocalyptic monsters, he reminds us that our greatest enemies are always each other. As with Randall, Chet is a threat to Sam's safety before the others ever showed up. And like Randall, Chet thought Sam was useless, thinking that Sam's weight made him disgusting. His aversion to violence made him weak. But now here's Chet, running away from a fight. And here's Sam, trying his best to do his duty, despite the fear of freezing him like the cold. The only time you can be brave is when you're afraid, as Ned told Bran. These are the choices that reveal yourself. And Chet turns out to be the coward here, not Sam. Chet was so certain he would escape the fist, but he's killed and revived as a white later on, forced into bondage by an army far worse than the Night's Watch. The dramatic irony continues as Sam assumes that Chet has orders from Elsie Mormont, who Chet also wanted to kill, and that Chet will take care of the dogs, who he's actually been starving to turn loose on the horses. Despite being treated like shit by most people, Sam still can't even imagine Chet's level of alienation and resentment. Not only does he not feel it himself, he can't even see it in Chet. Sam just doesn't have a hateful bone in his body. His response to a world that seems to have no place for him is to curl up into a little ball and blame himself, rather than fire indiscriminately into the crowd, as Chet does. Perspective is everything. We can't access objective truth because we can't ever get outside of our own heads. Storytelling, in some ways, mirrors the acts of empathy and imagination in which we make the attempt to find truth. You can see George making that argument in the very form of this chapter, how the massacre is cut up into jagged shards of memory. It's as if the event itself was so terrifying that it shattered not only Sam's ability to think about it, but George's ability to write about it. Even when we finally get access to what Sam saw at the fist, it comes in fragments. After all, Mormont ordered him away from the front line. His duty was to write messages to send back to Castle Black. You were talking last week about Sam as George's self-insert character, and this is some of the strongest evidence for that. Sam is literally the author of the battle. And as the author of the battle, he has to have a larger perspective in order to tell the full story. And the buildup, I think, is one of the most pivotal moments of Samuel's telling of the story because it's so tense. Even if we know what's going to happen at the end of it, given that we just experienced that John scene at the end of John 2, where he's at the Fist of the First Men with Mance Raider. An important storytelling aspect that George gets so right is the buildup to so many things. And he accomplishes this in Samuel 1 by having Samuel away from the battle itself, or rather 
away from the front line. Like, I, I think about how much less effective this scene would have been had Jon Snow still been with the Night's Watch on the Fist of the First Men, because Jon would have likely been with Elsie Mormont riding around from place to place, or maybe even on the front line itself. But Samo in the rear allows George to capture the mounting tension and dread, because we feel that rising action in Samo's perspective, because we're stationary behind the main line. It's also night outside, and Sam can't really make out anything to see there. So George's writing from Samuel's perspective allows the experience to feel auditory, even it comes even as it comes out on the page. That's a really good point. George is engaging your senses, but also cutting them off at the same time. You kind of have to strain forward to, to see, to hear what's happening. And that's the position Sam is in. Sam starts with the simple messages he wrote out beforehand in the event of a wildling attack, because that was the worst thing Elsie Mormont could see coming. Sam sends those messages off, but they seem almost quaint now, insufficient in the face of what's happening. The world has changed around them. Those letters are like an older draft of the story of the Fist of the First Men, one that's being overwritten by a new story, a horror story. The wildlings have been replaced, you could say, by the others. And whatever their in-universe origins might be, where the others are really from is stories. You can see that in how Sam thinks about them, the phrases he heard in stories. White walkers, cold shadows, hunting humans atop ice spiders. They told the same stories in Winterfell. That's what connects us all, north and south, trueborn and bastards. Winter is coming. Death is coming. So as in the prologue to book one, George's focus is less on the others themselves and more on the fear of the others. Fear is the mind killer, right? A self-fulfilling paralytic in which the terror of death is what gets you killed because it shuts down your responses. But fear also inspires the imagination, and narrative codifies this process through repetition and familiarity. Ask any campaign manager about this, that your number one task is to define your enemy through narrative. So you have this question then. Have the bedtime stories prepared Sam for what's waiting out there in the darkness? Or have they actually made it worse by firing his imagination? To fight off the fear within, Sam takes comfort in the sight of a bunch of big bearded guys running past with axes and spears. He follows them like a child might follow a parent, thinking, assuming, that they'll keep him safe. But just as Sam's own tough military dad was the source of danger rather than safety, these strangers from the Shadow Tower can't hold back the darkness. Sam sees them fire their arrows, hears them cheer, and then the cheer fades, and it takes that sense of security with it. Yeah, this scene is really effective at communicating the feeling that everything will be okay until it's not. Because when Samuel shows up, the stalwart men of the Night's Watch stand with swords and spears in hand, waiting. It gives you this false sense that everything is just going to be okay. The men are standing up and ready to throw back the whites and the walkers. But the smart reader is seeing this scene, evaluating it, and thinking, wait, there's something wrong about all of this. These men are here holding weapons that won't defeat the enemy. We know that swords and spears and unlit arrows won't kill others or whites. Only fire can defeat the whites, and only dragonglass or possibly Valyrian steel can stop the others. These brave men might as well be holding toy swords for all the sword for all the good those weapons are going to do against the oncoming mass of whites. And the Night's Watch freaking knows this. Mormont was there when the Whites attacked him back in the Game of Thrones. They know that fire is the only thing that will stop the Whites. But they stand there, ready to throw their lives away despite knowing better. And then the arrows go and everyone cheers and they realize that the Whites are still coming. 
I, I love that line about Samuel backing away without realizing it. His subconscious realizes that he's in danger of getting hit again, and his body reacts without conscious thought. You can't hold the dead back any more than Sam can hold his memories back. It's the powerlessness that makes it so terrifying. The zombies as inevitable as winter. Hence the imagery of Sam shaking like the last leaf on the tree, the last gasp of autumn. He thinks of himself as a coward again. And it makes me sad and angry to read how thoroughly he's internalized his father's hatred, to the extent that Sam thinks Randall was right to send him away under threat of death. Sam thinks he's unworthy, not only of his father's sword and castle, but of love, which ought to be a universal human birthright. His self-loathing has reached a practically suicidal pitch. And under the high fantasy surface, I think this is a chapter about suicide. Sam begins the chapter deciding to die, and ends the chapter deciding to live, in large part because of his friends. As strangers die around him on the fist of the first man, all Sam can think of are his friends. He wishes he could die with them. And that's the power of love right there. It can't stop death, because nothing can, but it can take away our fear of death, which is often the most we can achieve. Sam never got that love from his dad, so he thinks that when he dies, no one will mourn him. It'll be like he never lived at all. A coward's not worth weeping over, Randall told his wife, which sums up his whole mindset. He denies Sam's feelings, and in order to justify that abuse to his wife, he denies her feelings as well. The others exemplify that heartlessness, taking it in a more mystical, metaphysical direction. Sam thinks that Elsie Mormont feels the same way about him. Sam thinks that Elsie Mormont feels the same way about him. And as I've said, I think that's only half true. Mormont gets a heroic introduction in the battle, suddenly appearing on his horse and to order his men to give them fire. And Mormont thinks that Sam can't function on that level, so sends him back to the Ravens, for his own good. Unlike Randall, he believes Sam can play a role, and Sam decides to write out a bunch of different scenarios. He's once more in the position of the author. Like George, he's gardening a variety of narrative paths that the battle could take. The artist both reflects reality and creates a new reality. This part of the chapter is all about that give and take process. The battle is chaos, enveloping in flashes and fragments, and Sam has to synthesize that into a coherent narrative to send back to Castle Black. He hears Dywin cackling, burn you dead bastards, burn! A fierce surge of hope that Sam translates into his letters. Maybe he'll get to report a hopeful outcome. Anything is possible in the present moment. Sam's messages collapse together as their position collapses, with rumors and descriptions flying all over the place, possibilities in flux. But the reader already knows how this ends. We have to sit with our dread, watching as Sam's hope inevitably dies. Call it fate, call it doom, call it whatever you want. It's the knowledge that the universe is indifferent to our survival. The choice is narrow, and Sam's more positive letters look like projections, wish-fulfillment narratives. A huge shape rears up suddenly out of the darkness. Some watchmen think it's a giant, others think it's a bear. The latter turn out to be right, but part of the terror is not knowing. The subconscious shadow of death, what the Faith of the Seven calls the stranger. I feel like this is also George recognizing that he's not a veteran, and that his understanding of combat is entirely secondhand. He's reflecting on that through his writing process. Like Sam, George sees fighting from a distance, in bits and pieces, and tries his best to convey both a strategic and emotional understanding of what he's seeing. 
And I think George does a really good job of communicating what's happening at the fist. And part of why I think he does it so effectively is that the scene doesn't feel as much like a battle itself. And it's more like a football game that has gone horribly awry. The Castle Black Knights Watchmen gain an early lead over the White Walker White, scoring some early touchdowns. <laughs> it looks all but over. The Watchmen have won. But then the tide of the game starts to shift. They're only winning, and then they're holding their own. The score evens. The Patriots overcome a 28-3 deficit to tie the game. Outside of the way that this feels like a football game gone awry, another detail that struck me is how one of the Shadow Tower men that Sam thought he would be safe with staggers forward and dies right in front of him. Like I was saying last week, it's not going to be the people we would expect to be at the front line, leading the charge, fighting the battles, winning the war. It's going to be the Samuel Tarleys as opposed to the corn half-hand wannabes who will survive this battle and face the real version of the apocalypse. The limitations of Sam's POV and how that makes the zombie attack more frightening rather than less reminds me of Max Brooks' novel World War Z. Now that book I know has lost some of its luster after the mediocre movie adaptation and books like Robocalypse that mimicked the epistolary structure without any of the insight or emotions. But I still love World War Z, in part because it doesn't just depict a descent into conveniently total chaos. That's how a lot of zombie stories work where they kind of provide a blank slate so the author can come up with their own rudimentary social dynamics <laughs> instead of responding to anything in the real world. But World War Z shows institutions and cultures responding to the zombies, changing in some ways, staying the same in others. And one of the most famous set pieces from World War Z is the Battle of Yonkers, a snafu of the highest order in which a horde of zombies out of New York basically breaks the U.S. Army. Told from the POV of an infantryman named Todd. That's how World War Z works. There's a lot of different chapters, each with a different kind of POV conveying to the author who in-universe is a journalist writing a book about this this zombie war. So it kind of works like a Song of Ice and Fire in that way, in that you have you have a bunch of different limited POVs, and you, you have to glean the story out of the, the combination of each one. Now, Todd, this infantryman who fought in the Battle of Yonkers, he doesn't hate the zombies, even though he fought them and they killed a bunch of his friends. And why would he hate them? They don't even know what they're doing. Todd's anger is for the commanders who put him there. He says that they don't have the luxury of claiming to have been surprised. The zombies have been around a while at this point. The United States is three months into widespread public panic. In fact, that's why the Battle of Yonkers takes place. The army is trying to quell that panic by showing off that we can defeat them. Similarly, Elsie Mormont knows damn well that there are worse enemies than wildlings up here, but he hasn't prepared for them. Todd's overall argument is that his commanders were fighting the last war who he describes as those generals who spent their nardrop years training to defend West Germany from Ivan. Cold War tactics fail against the Walking Dead. Same deal in Westeros. Elsie Mormont can't let go of the war against the wildlings, because that's all he knows. Old dog, meet new tricks. Todd compares the Battle of Yonkers to the Battle of Little Bighorn, which has significant implications in both strategic and moral terms, both of which resonate with what's going on here in this Sam chapter. Strategically, Brooks is comparing Todd's commanders to Custer, and that same arrogant overextension applies to the Night's Watch. Morally, this frames the zombies as the return of the repressed, in terms of the colonization of the Americas. And you could say the same thing about the others, vis-a-vis -vis the children of the forest. Take all the grief and anger in the song Last of the Giants, weaponize it, and that's how you get White Walkers. But Todd, to be fair, also concludes that what really defeated them wasn't the incompetence or arrogance of their commanders. It was fear, the oldest weapon of them all. As he says, you don't have to be Sun freaking Zoo to know that real fighting isn't about killing or even hurting the other guy. 
It's about scaring him enough to call it a day. Break their spirit. That's what every successful army goes for. From tribal face paint to the Blitzkrieg to... What did we call the first round of Gulf War II? Shock and awe. Perfect name, shock and awe. But what if the enemy can't be shocked and awed? Not just won't, but biologically can't. And Tywin made a similar argument. The battle is over in the instant one army breaks and flees. No matter that they're as numerous as they were a moment before, still armed and armored, once they had run before you, they would not turn to fight again. The whites will never surrender, because they literally can't. They will never break. And that fact, in turn, breaks those who try and fail to fight them. Yeah, you know, I actually, um, so I haven't read World War Z, but I did watch a, a video of the of the Battle of Yonkers. Uh, it it is kind of kind of weird. They they filmed it. They did it like a used with a some animation from a, a game called Arma. I'm not I'm not very not familiar with with the, with the game, but it was it was really interesting to to get it. And I think. Uh, Maybe you actually want to pick up the book, so I might be uh, come back to you with some uh, some analysis of, of that book, and may- maybe I'll even watch the movie at some point. We'll see. I know the movie's not very good. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not a I, I, though I am a real historian. TM, not really. I just have the undergrad. One of the things I've always been fascinated by is alternative or speculative history. What would happen if, say, you placed a Marine Corps expeditionary unit into Rome during the time of Augustus Caesar? Why, that's just the plot of a series of Reddit posts by James Irwin, who crafted the story Rome, Sweet Rome, imagining what it would happen if you placed Marines against Roman legionnaires. Now, I'm not going to spoil the plot of the story, and it is in development, I think at some level, by Warner Brothers for a hopeful future movie, but the results are, are kind of interesting. as an interesting thought experiment. Part of the draw of A Song of Ice and Fire for me was in the smash cut of medieval political and military drama right into a zombie apocalypse. But when you put a medieval army in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. I love that genre-bending shit. The prologue established the dynamic that we see in full here with three medieval soldiers confronting ice demons. Samuel 1 blows the dynamic up to a lot larger of a level with a full force of 300 Spartans or Night's Watchmen against thousands of whites. I think your point about the Night's Watch adapting the tactics of what they're familiar with is really salient because these aren't the Targaryen loyalists that G.R. Mormont fought at the Trident or Greyjoy Reavers that some of these other guys fought or perhaps even some of Robert, Robert's men fighting at, at the Battle of Pike, the enemies of G.R. Mormont or the other Night's Watchmen. And it is good, I think, at some level that Mormont rode up yelling about giving them fire, but you know, maybe you tell them that before they waste a batch of arrows? But that, I mean, that's, that's kind of picking a nit. The larger point is that there is no victory here. They could fire all of their arrows as fire at the whites, and it would only slow the inevitable, because the Night's Watch is going to lose this battle. Of interest is that the Night's Watch chooses to fight this battle in the first place rather than run at first sight of the whites. The contrast is in the behavior of the wildlings led by Mance Raider. Despite having thousands of warriors, hundreds of thousands of bodies that they could throw at the whites and the others, the wildlings are not standing and fighting. They are running the fuck for the wall. Obviously, this is because the Wildlings have now had probable years of experience in engaging and fighting the others and the Whites, but the Night's Watch should really know better. This is a smaller example of a larger phenomena. The Night's Watch has lost all of its institutional knowledge of fighting the others and the Whites, and they don't know, and as such, they don't know their enemies' capabilities, skills, or tactics. And this comes as a result of them seeing the Wildlings as the true enemy rather than the others. 
And Mormont really crystallizes this point in the next Samuel chapter when he tells Sam, the Night's Watch has forgotten its true purpose, Tarly. You don't build a wall 700 feet high to keep savages and skins from stealing women. The wall was made to guard the realms of men, not and not against other men, which is all the wildlings are when you come right down to it. Too many years, Tarly. Too many hundreds and thousands of years. We lost sight of the true enemy, and now he's here, but we don't know how to fight him. And so these guys stand and fight and most of them die when really they should have been running at the get-go. But because their institutional and cultural norms tell them to stand and fight, they stand, fight, and most of them die. I think that's a, that's a really good point that really everyone should be acting like Sam at this point. Every, mm-hmm. Everyone should be, should be running and hiding from the White Walkers. That's really the only reasonable response to the, to the army of the dead. And Sam doesn't want to die dwelling on these horrible memories. He tries to remember something good. And all of Sam's good memories are of women. He thinks about his mother, he thinks about his sister, and of course he thinks about Gilly. And I think this is pretty telling. The main source of Sam's bafflement and dismay at the world is other men. Women have always been more accommodating of him. And this is in part, I think, because Sam is interested in many activities that are coded feminine, dancing and baking and so on, so he has has more in common with a lot of the women he encounters. But it's also because the men around him have been brought up with a ruthlessly competitive, kill-or-be-killed worldview. And we often see in A Song of Ice and Fire how this worldview hurts women and children victimized by those men. These rigid gender roles, however, also hurt individual men, the men who won't or can't live up to them. We saw that with Alistair Thorne, who was running the risk of getting Sam seriously injured or even killed with his contemptuous training methods. These, too, are bad memories that Sam can't replace with good ones. Only John crossed the line to help Sam, and that act of kindness ripples down to save him now. Gren, of all people, forces Sam to keep going, and stays with him, almost at cost of his own life. Gren was one of those fighting Sam at first when Alistair Thorne was ganging up on him. But John showed Gren a different way, and it made an impact on him. So unlike the other watchmen passing Sam by, Gren refuses to leave Sam there. Unlike Randall, unlike Alistair, he sees the worth in Sam. And even if he didn't, they're brothers, and they owe each other this. To let the devil take the hindmost is a moral victory for the devil. Living comes with pain. Gren's friendship takes the form of a boot to the ribs, because sometimes friendship means helping people out of self-destructive behavior. Dying is seductive because it's so easy. It's an end to the pain. And there's a quiet horror to Sam thinking that he just wants to, you know, maybe die a little. Another man passing by tells Gren to give up on him. Once they stop, they're dead and Sam will only drag Gren down with him. Why should more people die? But small Paul saves the day, trading his torch for Sam. The two sparks of life surviving in this frozen hell, cooperation and compassion persisting. And this is really moving, because just like how Gren used to be one of the bullies, small Paul was part of the mutiny. He was working for Chet, the guy who came very close to slitting Sam's throat. But Paul wasn't really interested in killing like Chet or Lark the Sisterman. He just wanted to escape and then to be left alone with his new pet bird. And as an aside, I love that Small Paul basically gives away the mutiny here by talking so much about how he was promised a bird and Chet said I could have Mormont's bird. But Sam and Gran are too exhausted and distracted to make sense of it. Paul's love for animals hints at a kind heart, and we see that here with him rescuing Sam. He even compares Sam to a calf he carried once. For Sam, though, this is just another humiliation. He's been infantilized and is now only a burden. Compassion can be painful to receive if you don't believe yourself worthy of it. What would Dad think of him now? 
Gren tries to distract Sam with songs, which captures the relationship between storytelling and the violence we're dealing with here. As with Sansa, the songs are a surface layer, which obscures bleak and uncomfortable realities. Gren is trying to bring Sam back to innocence, but it doesn't work. The songs of his childhood are no solace, because now when Sam hears the song about the bear, he remembers the bear on the fist of the first man. And this might be the most hideously intrusive of all Sam's flashbacks. A bear with no hair on its rotted flesh, the opposite of the one in the songs. It's everything Sam was lied to about, an emblem of the suffering inflicted on the natural world and all the life in it in the name of unlimited power. It's the big scare of the chapter, and George teases it here just before unleashing it in full. Yeah, I, I think that's a it's a lovely note that Samo in this chapter is that he wants to cry about John possibly being dead, which I think is so sweet because that's what John is thinking in Storm of Swords John 2, whether he's wondering sadly whether whether Sam is dead when he's standing atop the fist of the first men. And in that on that note, I love how Sam and John influence each other and the parties around the two. Like our friend Gren here, because Gren is such a badass in this part of the chapter. He refuses to leave his friend, refuses to adapt the social Darwinian survival of the fittest model that many of the other Night's Watchmen adapt as they're fleeing the fist. And though Sam thinks that Gren is only nice to Sam because of John, Sad Boy isn't present here. It's not like John is being there telling Gren to do the right thing. Gren is just doing the right thing. And I think that's George's romantic optimism at heart because Gren is showing us that people can change his own kick of the ribs from John back in a game of Thrones was a bit more uh, was more metaphorical than the ones that Gren gives Samo here but it was no less powerful but despite how strong Gren is how strong his will to save Sam is he simply doesn't possess the physical strength to get Samuel to his feet enter Sir Duncan the Tall's maybe possible descendant Small Paul who picks Sam up and carries him now as you might know, I hashtag work out. Paul carrying Samuel for as many steps as he does is quite the physical feat to me. Because this isn't some sort of farmer's carry. This is utilizing immense upper and lower body strength as well as cardiovascular endurance to walk carrying a large body with them. And as Sam is going to note in the next chapter, Samuel weighs more than Paul did. So, wow, that's an intense amount of strength and I'm amazed by it and wish to know Paul's workout routine. I guess I can't really ask him anymore. Still, the fear that Samo is feeling is felt by others like Gren. He knows that the others are pursuing them. So he tries to get Sam to shut up, think of nice things, sing songs in your head. But Samo doesn't like Gren's jukebox choice, the bear and the maiden fair. It kind of brings up recent memories of terror. The others have enslaved a bear and the poor beast is a horror to look at and he's been dead for a long time and enthralled for a long time, given the rotting flesh and the lack of hair. And yet the others don't even give the animal kingdom the ability to rest when they're dead either. They march on, charging and killing at command. In fact, back in the day, I remember a certain Tumblr writer, very handsome one at that, with a hashtag of hashtag remember the bear. And that's always st stuck with me, but I promise we'll get to that later on. Yes, indeed, we will in just a little bit. But now George plunges us headlong into what happened. And once again, it starts with the horns. This time, it's the Night's Watchmen signaling each other to mount up and ride for it. But for Sam, this is just as terrifying as the horn blast that signaled the arrival of the others. This is confirmation that they've lost, that none of his protectors will ever keep him safe, that all his dad's rules don't hold back the darkness, and absolutely nothing is in between Samuel Tarly and his death. 
It's the triumph of fear, the end of all the stories, and so Sam lets go of narrative, sending the birds flying away without any of the messages he wrote. In the moment, it felt to him like a failure, like he'd written all those words for nothing. But really, how would Sam describe what he saw next? What Sam saw was the earth giving up its dead. Hundreds of them, freezer-burned bodies that moved without life, without purpose, without reason to have come back to life, but to drag you down with them. That's the reason he is this way now. We have reached the heart of the image factory, the terror that is gripping Samuel Tarley. The visceral horror of the undead, the sheer mockery of life itself, finally breaks down the narrative, reducing it to slurry, a stream of images. It's the end of all things. And as with The Red Wedding, which also has this sense of pulling the story structure down, around, and into itself, George pauses for individual grace notes, portraits of people with nothing left. Otten Withers is the last gasp of the old guard, sitting dumbfounded in front of the fire until a horse kicks his face in. So it goes. Dolorous Ed is reduced to a cartoon image of the Night's Watch, a lone man in black with a sad black banner as the winds of winter blow. Ed's always got a joke. That's his whole thing. But now, Ed's only joke is that this can't possibly be real. This has to be a nightmare. Where's the leadership of the Watch in all this? Thorin Smallwood still wants to fight. The old bear knows it's over, and they have to retreat. And that's when the bear shows up. What a monolithic horror image this is. More than anything else, this is what broke Sam. This is the worst of all the memories haunting him as he struggles through the snow. It's so monstrous and gross, an inversion of nature. The bear is dead, as Sam thinks, pale and rotting, yet it keeps coming, an imitation of life. There's nothing more frightening than death, but there's nothing we can do about it. Part of the reason we tell stories is to reassure ourselves that death is not the end. The flip side of that, though, is the terror of death not being the end. This bear got to live again, but it's a total nightmare. The natural world has turned against the Night's Watch, and there's a ghastly irony to it being a bear specifically, given the Mormont sigil. Remember what Illyrio tells Tyrion. You Westerosi think you really are your symbols. Put you in a cage with a lion, though, and you'll see the difference real quick. This is the culmination of Elsie Mormont's overextension, his overlooking the threat of the others in favor of the war against the wildlings. The icon of his family, the image that stands in for his name, his very identity, has returned from the grave to claim him and his men. In the face of this terror, Thorn Smallwood finds his courage. Throughout the story so far, he's been framed as one of the worst watchmen, racist against the wildlings, arrogant in terms of tactics, dismissive of other views. Now his perspective has been rendered moot. Nothing he believes in seems to matter anymore. So he gives his all one last time. George writes Thorne's last stand as blazingly heroic, the furious culmination of all this imagery, the red and orange flames reflected on his sword, contrasted with the icy blue eyes of the bear. That's fire and ice brought together. And for just a second, Thorin is Azora High. He is the warrior of light with his sword of fire standing against the darkness. And just as quickly, it's all over. And I love how simply and brutally George writes this. Thorin almost takes the bear's head off, and then the bear takes his. Death comes quickly. All we can do is stand up for each other. No chance and no choice. 
it also feels like a leitmotif of Sir Waymar Royce's last stand from the Game of Thrones prologue, because Waymar, as we talked about twice now, was unlikable throughout that prologue, kind of being a dick to his men, kind of being arrogant and standing in for the noble chivalry of the of, of the chivalry of, of the lordly class and knightly classes of Westeros. But when the others came, he stood his ground like a man of the night's watch, as Will thinks. And then, like Waymar, he charged the other when he was almost down and almost dead. You almost wish Thorne would scream for Robert here or some such sort of triumphant shout. I, I like how you put it as grace notes for all of these men of the Night's Watch who are dying or about to die. Most of these guys don't have a moment of likability for the entirety of the story that we've covered so far. But in death, George gives them a moment of grace where they're given a small mo- moment of humanity, where humanity is restored in them. It's a nice thing that George does for dirtbags. And as a dirtbag, I appreciate it. Of course, king of the dirtbags, Jeff Hartline, Brendan B. Fish, <laughs> the most contrarian man alive, as you're known. <laughs> and I was, I was comparing this to a dream and to a nightmare. And as in a dream, Sam is just suddenly somehow on a horse. He doesn't remember how. He can't take control of things. All he can do is hold on for dear life as they ride. And then he loses the horse just as randomly. It's pure chaos at this point. No matter how bad dreams get, there's at least the release of waking up. But when Sam wakes up from this one, he's still here, in the snow. And things are somehow going to get worse before they get better. The entire chapter builds up to the other. This is its red carpet. This is its raison d'etre, its reason for being, in-universe and in the narrative. We've already seen its claw marks all over Sam's psyche, the lethal terror of its oncoming, the subterranean dread of its passage. It is the endgame of power, the host behind the blue eyes of the bear and all the other zombies on the fist. It's the focus of all this chapter's fear, and its arrival is the payoff for all the tension. We only saw the whites during the battle. The others weren't there in the Fist of the First Men as far as we could tell. Presumably they were behind the scenes, like the puppet masters that they are. Only now are they chasing down the Night's Watch and taking them one by one. As throughout the chapter, the question becomes, what do we do in the face of that? What worth are fragile human bodies and feelings next to death? Small Paul is so tender, first to Sam and then to the horse the other is riding. Why'd you hurt that horse? He asks the other. On one hand, this seems like such an inadequate response to the sight of a horse covered in frost with its guts hanging out. On the other hand, Paul is cutting to the core of it. Why did the other hurt that horse, and that bear, and all those people? And yeah, that's what I was talking about with hashtag remember the bear back in the day. As in the prologue to book one, the other is presented as an emissary of the natural world and a perversion of nature at the same time. It emerges from the trees and doesn't even break the crust of the snow beneath its feet. As George described the others to artist Tommy Patterson, their armor is like camouflage, reflecting the natural world around them like a still pond. But look what they do to life. They're guilty not only of mass murder, but of enslavement on a level the masters of Slaver's Bay could never imagine. George also described them as elegant. The other is all graceful movements like a dance, contrasted with these slow, ugly lurches of the whites. And that's how it sees all humanity. It's an elf. It's a cat chasing mice. It's a knight mowing down peasants. Yeah, I think on this read, I really felt like I was seeing Loris Terrell or Jamie Lannister or some other individual performing an elegant fight sequence as we see Hmm. in some of the scenes from A Song of Ice and Fire. 
I think of that phrase, and I think it's a show-only phrase, but uh, when, when Barrison is describing Jamie Lannister, he says that he painted with one color and it was red mm-hmm. or something like that, mm-hmm. which has this this kind of wonderful amount of language that's tossed at the act of killing people, right? Um, which is which I think is, is what we're seeing with the other. Because death is like a Ugh. dance to the others. Death is like a dance to some knights in the story. It's something of to be laughed about as you're fighting and swashbuggling and killing people it's a thing of beauty to see even as it spills blood and steals life it's a martial art right and you know mm-hmm. we, we we tend to enjoy martial arts in a hopefully non-violent context but i think that's how the the others saw waymar royce and that's how they see grin and small paul here is just something to dance with something your food to play with before you eat it and their last defense against it is fire of course but the other snuffs out Gren's torch with its glowing blue sword. Ice meets fire, the titular phenomenon of the story. It feels like we've accessed the metaphysical core of everything. That's what makes this so fascinating, even as it's terrifying. Small Paul charges, a burly berserker with his axe, very kind of stolid and comforting like those Shadow Tower men that Sam saw in the fist. But just like them, Paul comes up short. The other is light as snow on the wind, as George says, and slides its crystal sword right through Paul like a shiv. All Paul can say is, oh, it's the sudden revelation of mortality. No one's going to intervene. There is no mercy. You're not going to wake up right before you hit the ground. It's the end of the line, which is what this chapter is all about. Oh, it's exactly what Quentin thinks when Danny's dragon set him on fire. Once again, ice and fire brought together in terms of what they do to us. They're out of balance and they're out of control. Sam's fear keeps growing, as he thinks. He prays to the mother again, and now the father. But Sam's true father never protected him, never loved him as he should have. Sam hears his father's voice now, merging with Alistair Thorne and Rast, all one bully calling him a craven, a baby who can only cry. It's some bleak shit. It's hard to imagine things getting any worse. But when you hit rock bottom, it means you've got nothing left to lose. Even as Paul dies, suffering for the kindness he showed Sam, he wrestles the other's sword out of its hands, making it vulnerable for a moment. It's Sam's moment to act. But it's not the insults in his head that motivate him. Randall thought his harsh techniques would build Sam up, but he was wrong. All they did was break him down. The insults don't work prompting only nervous giggling from Sam as he imagines what a foolish zombie he'll look like, always stumbling around, tripping over his own feet. And that is some bitter gallows humor right there. Even in death and resurrection as a zombie, Sam would be ashamed of himself. That feeling is his true enemy, and it's John's voice that overcomes it, cutting through the insults from the others to tell Sam he can do it. No one else ever told Sam that. Only John believed in him. That's how you help people be the best they can be, and that's what Sam needs right now. Sam has to close his eyes in order to see, trusting his intuition, doing nothing but rushing forward with the dagger held in front of him with his hands, and that turns out just to be enough. Yeah, that that part struck me so hard because combat and killing is not quite this ordered dance that it sometimes seems like in movies and TV shows. It's not a choreographed Mm -hmm. set of movements set to string music. A lot of it is pure, dumb fucking luck and chaotic violence that causes the other person to die. Samuel stumbles forward, charging blindly, the dagger pointed out, and he makes contact with the ice. I love 
the detail that the sound that Sam makes when the dagger punctures him is like cracking ice. It's it's interesting because David J. Peterson, when he was at one point was developing a language for the others, which was never shown in Game of Thrones, but there you can see some samples of it or hear some samples of it on YouTube, described it and you can hear it as a sound like cracking ice. And that was supposed to be the language of the others. And in a way, I don't think this is simply the impact of the obsidian dagger into the other itself, that cracking ice sound. Rather, I think this is the other communicating something in his own language. Hmm. Remember how the other language was described in the Game of Thrones prologue? The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. And now that impact creates a sound, a quote, sound ice makes when it breaks beneath a man's foot. To me, that's the other vocalizing the pain of dying, of real death, rather than the obsidian dagger going into its flesh. It's like Small Paul in Quentin Martell's moment. It's, oh, before he screams and shriek the other does right after this moment. But that's really the audible, that's really only the audible side of this scene. The visual piece is even more awesome, if you can believe it. Hell yes. The death of the other is one of George's great visual spectacles, like the birth of the dragons in reverse. It's miraculous, scarcely believable, something both divine and alien. Blue blood hissing, the other's fingers smoking where it touches obsidian. This is the kind of shit you read fantasy for. The other melts like the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz, or like gremlins exposed to the sunlight. It's a monster movie ending for this self-contained horror story of a chapter. Its flesh turns to mist, and even its milky bones dissolve. That which seemed like the most powerful being in existence a moment ago has now completely fallen apart, like a house of cards, like there was really nothing in it after all. Sam Tarly has struck back against the domain of death, the world that told him he'd never be good enough. After such a grim chapter, with the apocalypse unfolding all around him, the triumph is now all the sweeter, as you were saying earlier. And Sam did it with the dagger John gave him, now, quote, wreathed in steam as if it was alive and sweating, one of the trippiest images in this bad trip of a chapter. It's as though the dagger has become the dragon it's named for. Yet despite steaming, the dagger is now cold to the touch, as if it's absorbed the essence of the other. After all, speaking of Jon Snow, he's the result of ice and fire coming together. Maybe this is maybe this is a sex scene in a way, like a very abstract version of Rhaegar and Lyanna getting together, reflecting how Lyanna, ice, absorbed Rhaegar's fire and then died for it. But of course, Rhaegar and Lyanna left behind a child. There's nothing left of the other. No progeny, no love, only death. And I think that's partially why Sam doesn't take a lot of triumph from this moment personally. He doesn't feel great immediately. Sam doesn't want the dagger. He still doesn't want to fight and deal death. He wants to leave something more behind. We'll see that kind of, you know, be fruitful and multiply approach to life when he uh, hooks up with Gilly in A Feast for Crows. But Sam is wrong when he still calls himself a craven. He has proven otherwise. As Gren says, he's the first in thousands of years to kill an other. Sam has brought the dawn. Literally, pink light is now filtering through the trees. This represents the end of the long night. It's always darkest before the dawn, as they say. Life finds a way. What I really love about how this chapter ends, though, is that George doesn't indulge in sentimentality. No angels descend to provide Sam the Slayer with a chariot to spur him on his way, and Randall's not here to see what his son has accomplished. I doubt he'll ever hear about it, or if he does, I doubt he'll believe it. Instead, we have come full circle, 
right back to where the chapter began, Sam taking one step and then another. And that's all any of us can do. Keep going. Decide to live another day, no matter how hopeless it seems. And I've been talking about a lot of reference points for this chapter, mostly in terms of horror, but the sheer bleakness also pushes us into existential drama territory, what it means to find meaning for ourselves in a meaningless world. So in its final moments, as Sam just takes one more step and then another, this chapter reminds me not of Stephen King, nor The Blair Witch Project, nor World War Z, but Samuel Beckett and that famous line of his at the end of The Unnameables, I can't go on. I'll go on. That's so amazing. That's such a great way to end the the announce the depth portion for for Storm of Swords Samuel One, because Samuel's not going to. He doesn't. You know, I talked about it in our mini so, but he's just not going to turn into Captain America after being this kind of character of of slight physical build, or in the case of of Samuel being of of greater physical build. He's still going to be Samuel Tarly, but the fact that he keeps stepping on, he's going to try really hard is a, a wonderful moment that really brings the sweetness, despite all of the bitterness of this chapter, and makes it that much more sweet by chapter's end. As you say, the darkness is, has to be there so the light can shine that much more strongly. Beautifully said. I think it's, it's that contrast, like you were saying earlier, that plunging us into the depths of despair makes it all the more powerful when Sam is able to st- take a step out of it. And I mentioned the no chance, no choice moments earlier, and I think you see that same dynamic with, with Brienne and A Feast for Crows. Mm-hmm. So moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, those birds that Sam sends off at the end, those birds without messages, they do arrive at Castle Black, and Aemon will write about them in the letter to Dragonstone that Davos reads. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because all of those birds, the first couple of birds arrive back that they were attacked. But the fact that he, Samuel doesn't tell more about who was attacking them leads to all of that doubt in A Dance uh-huh. with Dragons about the whites and the others. Like, really, were there actual whites and others there? And there are so few survivors from the Fist of the First Men that there is enough doubt that characters like Othel Yarwick and especially Bowen Marsh can maneuver around Jon Snow and still create the belief structure in the Night's Watch or continue rather the belief stru- structure in the Night's Watch of the Wildlings rather than the others are the true threat to, to the realm but it is kind of interesting when you come back and you're like yeah we got a bunch of birds but they didn't have any messages in them Sam what's uh, what's going on what actually happened at the Fist of the First Men so it's a uh, it, it's cool and it has a lot of ramifications for the future of the story beyond a storm of swords so the others chops the flame off of Gren's torch and it goes out preventing Chet from burning Small Paul's body and sadly and sure enough Small Paul as well as Chet turn up as whites at the abandoned village in a storm of swords same old three and I believe that village is actually uh, is, it's white tree isn't it the, they show back up at white tree in a storm of swords same old three or they think it might be white tree they think it's white tree it's it's left ambiguous as to as to whether or not it is isn't that just a, a great little devastating moment when this this man who protected Sam who gave his life for Sam ends up coming back as a zombie to attack Sam and Sam tries to recreate what he does here mm. goes after with a dragonglass tagger but then he shatters because it, it hits his armor and that's actually not how you kill the whites that's right. part of what makes fighting the white walkers so difficult is that you kind of need different weapons to kill them versus their zombie servants and of course Sam and Gilly are are saved by cold hands but uh yeah that's a uh, Sam 3 is, is not as ambitious as this chapter, but it, it might be even more uh, terrifying and devastating in some ways. So oh, yeah. that's going to be a great episode as well. Mm-hmm. So moving into theory and discussion, we haven't talked too much about military matters. We've talked a little bit about <laughs> as we've gone through this Sam chapter, because I think the, the horror tone, the radical structure, Sam is a POV, these things take precedence. But this is also a chapter about how to deal with a military disaster. So I wanted to ask you, Jeff, what do you, what do you think? How do you think Elsie Mormont handles it? What, how would you grade him as a general here? Three out of ten. 
All right, that's the end of the episode. <laughs> no, I, that I sums think it up. Well, it, it's a, it's a mixed bag. So it was interesting when I was when I first saw your question because we had started doing the the um, research and writing for these these episodes a, a couple of weeks ago, um, which is it's nice when you have these two parts because you can really like kind of get in depth on things. I, I remember I was reading Stephen Atwell and Steve Atwell said, "Hey, I think Mormont did a really good job here at the Fist of the First Men. And he made some very compelling arguments, which I'll get to in a, in a moment." But I kind of came. Up, came away with a bit of a, a, a different perspective upon a, than Stephen Atwell, peace be upon his name, because I think it's much more of a mixed bag about how Elsie Morm- Mormont conducts himself as a general here. Because on, on one hand, Elsie Mormont acts decisively in fighting back and deciding to break contact in the middle of said conflict. That's super difficult, given that no one has radios to coordinate any of this. Elsie Mormont has to ride back and forth across the line to rally the survivors get them to mount horses and then get the fuck off the fist of the first men rapidly while the whites are are coming over the ring wall. And despite all of that chaos, he gets some of his men clear of the attack and keeps some of them alive. To me, that's kind of a victory. The tactics, meaningless as it ultimately becomes, are done well by by Mormon. He's funneling the whites against a ring wall and attempting to mitigate the force disparity by slowing them against said ring wall and using the elevation advantage to keep the whites from moving as quickly as they could. Although, of course, they do kind of shamble and move slowly in A Song of Ice and Fire. Not so much the case in Game of Thrones. However, I am a little annoyed with Mormon, as I talked about earlier, that he wasn't riding up and down the line telling everyone to arm themselves with fire arrows and torches before the actual, you know, sailing of the first arrows. They had time. They, they had time because the horns blew three times at the end of the Storm of Swords prologue. And Sam is able to move up to the line from his position prior to the arrival of the Whites. So Mormont should have been there being like, everyone arm yourselves with fire. That's the only way we can kill the Whites. I saw this back at Castle Black, back in the Game of Thrones. But there's also a larger annoyance on my part that this is an unwinnable battle from the start. The Night's Watch knew they were outnumbered. They knew they couldn't prevail, so why did they? Again, I think the reason why is that this is the honorable chivalric practice of warfare, because Mormont would rather put up a fight against impossible odds than do the smart thing and beat feet for the wall. Moreover, despite the fact that they successfully broke contact, there didn't seem to be any deliberate plan in place for how they were going to withdraw from the fist of the first men. It was entirely ad hoc, and the LC was was lucky that he didn't lose his entire fighting force. Like when you're developing a plan for defense, part of the plan for defense is your plan for retreat in the case you get attacked and you have to break contact from the enemy. And there doesn't seem to have been a plan in place to do that. And this is a point that John makes over and over again in Clash of Kings when he's at the fist of the first men, where he's thinking that this is a good defensible position but it's really hard to get off the fist of the first men once you're on top of it and in case you get surrounded still i do have to give some props to mormont for organizing the force after the fist of the first men the night's watch could have fled in a disorganized route and then have been utterly annihilated piecemeal by the others as they all ran away individually mormont did a good job i think in organizing the march posturing his force towards an orderly retreat with a line of movement redistributing supplies and putting the wounded on horses and I think Mormont saves the lives of some of his men for for the moment, I guess. But some of them are not going to last long. There's ones that are going to die, as we find out in Sam 2. The, well, there's one guy that's dying at the start of that chapter. And of course, there's a fucking mutiny afoot. And that's all going to culminate towards the end of A Storm of Swords, Samuel 2. And all of that just brings to mind the whole purpose of the great ranging in A Song of Ice and Fire. So 
In my own personal reading, I just finished a really good book, and I recommend that everyone read this, whether you're interested in geopolitics or not. But it's called The Afghanistan Papers by the, by a Washington Post national security reporter by the name of Craig Whitlock, in which Craig Whitlock went through a ton of classified lessons learned reports from military and civilian personnel who served in Afghanistan. Of course, if you've heard the title, you immediately, your mind should go to the Pentagon Papers, which were um, the papers that were released in 1971 by Daniel Ellsberg, uh, which shed light on how badly America fucked Vietnam in more ways than when it fucked up its conduct in Vietnam. So it's the same sort of dynamic that's present in the Afghanistan Papers. I really strong recommend to read that because the book paints a bleak picture of how soldiers, diplomats, aid workers, and others in American service lied about America's progress in defeating the Taliban and stabilizing the country of Afghanistan. And in the book, they talk a lot about the myopic focus on tactics of defeating the Taliban insurgents on the battlefield rather than having a strategy to win the war or really having any strategy at all or long-term thinking about Afghanistan, what kind of country it's going to be, how it maintains its purpose away from the from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Hell, the U.S. couldn't even define whether Afghanistan's focus was counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, nation-building, counter-narcotics, etc. Couldn't even define a strategy for what it was trying to do there. And that was for the entirety of the war. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people who, when I, when I read A Song of Ice and Fire, I can't help but compare it to the way that things work out and the normal course of things and, and the way in the, its relation to modern politics. And I do think that is something that it's on, on George's mind. I do think that Vietnam and his memories of Vietnam play a role in how he writes The Great Ranging because there is a feeling when you read about The Great Ranging, how there is a major mission creep and what happens in for The Great Ranging, similar to what happened in, in Vietnam and especially happened in Afghanistan. Because I don't think Mormont really had any cognizant strategy of what to do north of the wall. A mission which started with the objective of finding Benjamin Stark that morphs into crushing the wildlings and killing Mance Raider that then becomes a survive the apocalypse mission that goes quite poorly just does not bode well for Mormont's grasp of strategy. The tactics of the battle aren't terrible. The strategy of what they were doing north of the wall was atrocious. The mission creep was real. The objectives were murky. The end state was nebulous. The result was the nearly complete destruction of the Night's Watch's fighting ability. So... Uh, I originally wrote, I award Mormont no points and may God have mercy on his soul, but I think I'm just going to give him a three out of 10 ultimately. Fair, scrupulously fair, as we always are here on that autocast. Yeah, I think that's, I think you laid it out so well there that if you kind of just look purely at the, the present moment of this chapter, so when they're, when they're retreating from the fist and then uh, trying to make their way south to Craster's Keep, Mormont is, is working overtime to try to keep as many, of his, as many of his men alive as possible. And he's using all the tools he has at his disposal, but it's just the question of of everything leading up to that. And it's interesting. I was I was thinking, like the others don't really lay siege to the fist of the first man, right? They don't really mm-hmm. surround the hill, as far as we can tell, right? Like they they're mostly coming up the northern slope, and they the Night's Watch is able to break away on the southern slope after a while, and after the zombies have already started to accumulate there. So if if Mormont had ordered a retreat as soon as that they heard that Thurn Horde blast, I would bet most of them would, would have been able to get away. Like I assume, the, like mm-hmm. the others would probably still be hunting them, but you might have had a, a much larger force. Made, and you, know, you know, you can tease out that AU as long as you want. What would have happened at Craster's Keep? Who knows? Etc. Blah blah blah. But man, it's just Mormont has to realize how bad this is for the Night's Watch to lose the core of their fighting strength going forward. They're going to be in such such a weaker position. So it does it does speak poorly to his overall mission. 
and it's, it's so galling because he knows he knows that's what's up here after after the attack mm-hmm. on Castle Black, and uh, I wonder if part of it is just like what you were saying about, about Bowen Marsh and, and Awful Yarwick that people will do whatever they can to avoid looking a danger like that in the face uh, because of not only because of how what a challenge it would be to deal with it, but it, it's because it suggests that you've been doing everything wrong your entire career and no one wants to deal with that. And yeah, I think we, we obviously we see that in real world foreign policy as well. There's there's mission creep and then there's just path dependence. There's the, the sunk cost fallacy hits in hard. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see uh, kind of a smaller scale version of that with how Tywin handles things when we move to our next chapter next week, Storm of Swords Tyrion 3. Where, you know, Tywin can't deal with any information that challenges his priors. And he can't deal with the idea that maybe he has a responsibility to the North. Or maybe that there are crazier things going on up there than he imagines. Um, because that would challenge his reputation as the guy who always knows what's going on. And always has the right plan. And is, is the, the smartest politician in Westeros. And this chapter just shows you what happens when those assumptions fall apart. Yeah, you know, it. it I think what you said is so smart about... How if the start of the battle, if Mormon had fled, he would have saved a lot of lives. And one thing I, I, that struck me as you were saying that was, what was the purpose of staying on the fist of the first men now that the others and the whites had attacked them? Like, why were they there? Like, what was that? Were they going to now? Were they going to? Were they going back to the intercept of Mance Raider mission to try and kill Mance Raider? There, there's no, there, no granted. There's a short amount of time and obviously probably not of like conscious thought went into like the, 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 the tactics and the, and the strategy, sure. long-term strategy of it at that but point. Even, yeah. Yeah. The, at that point, they're all like fighting for their lives or thinking that they're going to fight for their lives. What, what do you, what happens if they even prevail? What happens if they survive the battle right? of this, the first men? Like what the then fuck what? are they doing next? Yeah. Yeah. What it's, is the next step? Question. I, I think that is, that is something, you know, that we, we think about, you know, I mean, like you put it in, in like a, a a context of of modern politics. Like, what happens next? What happens when we overthrow the Taliban and defeat Al Qaeda, and now we're in in Afghanistan? What do we do now that we've done those things? And it's hard. I I mean, like I I it's 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 difficult. And and I think like a lot of you know we're, we're recording this in December two thousand twenty one. And, you know, the United States has withdrawn in some disgrace from Afghanistan about four months ago from when we're recording this. And Mormont withdraws in disgrace from the fist of the first men here. It's hard not to, like, think of, like, the the, the parallels between between the two. And also with, with Vietnam was probably the more proximate source of, of where George drew inspiration for Mormont's great ranging and what happens at the fist of the first men. And, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we're kind of in, in, a, in a place and our our reading of you know this medieval fantasy type story where we we feel as though um we we, we kind of get kind of lost in the moment because it, it's very thrilling to read the battle of the fist of the first men it's super cool and like i you could probably hear when i was doing the synopsis but i just was just loving like doing that those parts of like the the, the battle itself and uh, even even try to pull as I was thinking through, I was like, oh, I got to use like the voice I used to use when I was a when I was a company commander and, and different things like that when I was, you know, trying to, you know, sitting in front of formation or whatnot. But uh, but now I, you look at it, at it, too, and you're like, yeah, brave words. Awesome things are happening. But for what purpose? Why? Are, what are they going to do here? Even if they win, how do they ultimately win? And what is their strategic purpose in the long term? So, yeah, now I'm awarding Mormont two 
points out of 10, ultimately, is what I'm saying. He dropped down yet another point thanks to what you just said. <laughs> well, I, I live to, to, to drag his score down, I suppose. The poor old bear. I do. Uh, we'll get to Sam's next chapter. I do feel bad for him in a lot of ways when we get to that chapter and he like he figures it out just before they they kill him like he says to sam i'm, I'm really like is that uh that paragraph you quoted earlier actually when he says we should have known we lost sight of the true enemy this is who we're here to fight and then like minutes later his own man stab him in the gut so that's right. that classic irony if he figures out the truth just just a little bit too late so i think he's there's there's a lot to condemn him for but he's a, he's a tragic figure in a lot of ways and we'll uh we'll wrap that up with him when we get to sam too so sad, yeah. We only have one last chapter with with, with Jira Mormont, the great LC, the great old bear standing in the in the midst. So that's going to be, ah, oh, that is a very sad moment. But it's it's one that's uh, definitely thrilling. And Samuel's story is just amazing throughout. And I'm so thrilled that we got through his first chapter together, sir. And it was a uh, such a pleasure doing this with you. But I. I do think, yeah, I know. And I feel so sad that we have to say thanks for listening and, you know, listen to us next time. But I do think that it's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Samo 1, Part 2. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please review us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself was renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties on the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you folks so much. Your support means everything to us, so thank you. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords Tyrion 3, in which we're going to leave all of this apocalyptic bullshit behind and embrace politics, because politics is back, baby, and it's better... Oh, it's it's there than ever. Classic small council scene, just like the the first couple books. We haven't really got one of those yet in Storm of Swords because Tyrion's on the outs. But now we're we're plugged back in to that small council room where they they scheme and play and 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 fight over the power of the realm like dogs over a bone. Good times. Yes, good 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 times indeed. It is it is, it is really it is a really interesting chapter. Even though time is just a piece of shit throughout the chapter. I mean, you're gonna be shocked to find this. <laughs> shocked. Day shocked totally shocked to find this remains a dynamic throughout his remaining chapters when he's alive in a song of ice and fire 
So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 3.